Hey everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Well, today is the third Wednesday of the month, which means it's time for your prescription to health with Dr. Stefan Esser. And he's going to talk about your liver today, our livers. Do they have anything to do with our lifestyle or does our lifestyle have anything to do with our livers? I can't wait to find out. Please welcome Dr. Stefan Esser. Good to see you again. And you too, Chef AJ. We're talking about the double L's today, right? That liver and lifestyle and lay it all out. There's your third L for the day. So <laughs> but yeah, this is this is such a crucial topic that, uh, you know, again, my goal of this new year of 2024, when I'm hanging out with you, is for people to leave knowing a little bit more about their bodies, how it works, what they can do with their healthy lifestyle to improve each of these areas. This will not necessarily be a ins and outs of how to treat hepatitis C, chronic viral load and blah, blah, that's not it. It's about the interrelationships, about the personal choices we make with our anatomy and physiology. And today about the liver. So yeah. Well, I can't wait because livers, everybody has one, right? Uh, we, yeah, that's, they need one. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't really live without one. No, it's it is not. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. shall we jump right in? Absolutely. All right, let's do it. Let's see if I can find it on here. And here we go. All right. So today, the prescription for health and today, your liver and your lifestyle that we're going to be talking about. And uh, my goals today is to visit the anatomy and the physiology classroom with you to discuss some common liver conditions, talk a little about intersections between lifestyle and your liver health, and develop a game plan uh, for that, for you to have a healthy liver long-term. So a liver anatomy, uh, right? I want you to all reach down and kind of touch the bottom of your rib cage on both sides. You ought to be able to feel it. If you cannot feel your rib cage, at the bottom edge there, then you probably need to do Chef AJ's program or my four-week detox to lose a little bit of the unnecessary weight that you're carrying. But you should be able to feel that rib cage and you lean back a little bit if you need to and you can feel the edges, the border of that. So just underneath that border on the right-hand side, up inside of you, is your liver. Uh, your organs, uh, especially like the lungs, the heart, and the liver are well protected by the rib cage coming down all the way to that area. If you can feel your liver sticking out, well, you shouldn't be able to. That's too big. And we call that hepatomegaly, meaning having a big liver. And that's a sign of a problem. So if you think you can feel your liver up in there, hmm, something feels odd right underneath my rib cage, it's worthwhile having it looked at in a good ultrasound and examination. But so that liver lives up underneath that rib cage where it's protected. And our last conversation was on the pancreas. You could see how close that organ is, along with the stomach and the gallbladder and all of these other digestive organs that are all in that abdomen slash down into your pelvis just a little bit. Now, the liver is extraordinarily vascular, meaning it gets lots and lots of blood flow. And so you can see here in this nice drawing how the hepatic vein and then the aorta all come into little branches coming off feeding this. Now, interestingly enough, right, your vena cava, the inferior vena cava, is how all that blood returns back toward the heart. And it actually travels up through and into that liver and then out and off the other side as it goes back to the heart. So this should make you think, wow, all that blood going to the liver? I mean, this must be a pretty important organ if it's getting that much perfusion, if it's getting that much blood flow, because our body is going to prioritize the structures that are most important to get the most blood flow to allow us to survive and thrive. So the liver is the largest solid organ in your body, weighing, as you can see there, the liver has four lobes. And it's further divided into eight independent segments. In that liver are these little physiologic or anatomic, I should say, areas called lobules, these little segments. And they're over a million lobules. Mind blown right there to think that in that liver are a million lobules because we're going to look at those in a minute. And as I mentioned, lots of blood. 25% of every heartbeat, right? One quarter of that blood coming out of your heart immediately goes right into the liver, right? Because it needs to feed that liver to allow it to do its crucial, crucial functions. Now, here is what a liver lobule looks like. You can see this nice drawing and you see how, right, these blood vessels coming up and weaving along. And then these segments of hepatocytes, which are little cells that do the function 
to me, I look at this and I go, wow, that's like an apartment complex, right? With one after the next, after the next, after the next. And then you've got all the plumbing and the electric going up in there. It's like some of those massive apartment complexes you see in New York City or in China, right? And down mainland China. It's just amazing to look at that. And so all these little tiny cells are all functioning, working, and they're dumping stuff that they create or form, right? Into the blood so that then can flow through the body. You see three different vessels here, a vein, an artery, and of course, a green thing, which is a little bile canaliculus, right? Or a little uh, tube that carries the bile that is formed uh, by these little liver lobules. So the blood flows up through the inferior vena cava, which is again, venous blood, it's deoxygenated, and it brings wastes and debris with it into the liver. The liver then has the incredible responsibility of processing all of this waste, all this debris, all this garbage, and detoxifying it in such a way that it either goes into the bile, which then goes into your intestines and you poop it out, or it binds it up with other chemicals so that it is now water-soluble more readily, and it goes out through your urine. And so the liver is taking all of this blood, this venous blood from the inferior vena cava. And then of course it needs its own arterial blood, right? Because all these hepatocytes, they need oxygen. They need good, healthy, clean blood to help them function. And that's what's happening in the liver. The inferior vena cava carries all that deoxygenated, dirty blood into there. The liver then metabolizes, detoxifies all of this. And then that blood passes on and goes back to the heart where it then pumps to the lungs and then from the lungs back to the heart and then the heart back out to the body. It's amazing to think about these hundreds of thousands of, or millions of heartbeats per day, just bup, 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 going all day long. It's amazing. Well, this is a histologic slide, meaning they took a little sample or a cut of the liver and put it under a slide so you can see it under microscope. And you can see all these hepatocytes, how they're lined up, right? And kind of with the blood flowing through in that area. Now, the physiology of the liver is such that it does a lot for you. So you should love your liver. And we're gonna talk about how to love your liver with your lifestyle. Hey, that's almost like a little limerick. Love your liver with your lifestyle. Say that five <laughs> times fast. And so that's a new one. Chef AJ is going to now use in her next, uh, you know, kind of segment. Love your liver with your lifestyle. I love it. <laughs> and so when you look at this, it does so much for us. It's producing proteins that you need for clotting your blood, for transporting your cholesterol. It helps form globulins, which are little uh, molecules that bind it with some of your immune cells that form, you guessed it, immunoglobulins, right? As well as it influences how much pressure is in your cellular matrix and in your bloodstream. We call that oncotic pressure. And that's where you need albumin, which is a protein produced by the liver and which helps the body to balance out the amount of fluid it retains, right? And the amount of pressure in between all the different cells because, you know, think about this in your cells, like in your skin, it's around your muscles, you need a certain amount of blood flow. And that's influenced by the amount of pressure in between each of those cells. If there's too little pressure, well, then you're not getting stuff in. If there's too much pressure, then the, you're blocking out the flow of fluid and molecules as well. So it has to be just the right amount. And albumin, which is a protein synthesized by your liver, is important for that. Also, you can see, wow, even copper bioavailability, right? There's another protein produced there. But as we mentioned too, 25% of every heartbeat, right? Every goes right to your liver. And so as that blood, as that venous blood in particular comes up and goes back, right? What happens is any viruses, pathogens, bacteria that snuck in through your nose, through your skin or through your intestinal lining, they go right up into that liver and they get trapped by these different immune cells that are in there and by a network of fine fibers. And then the body breaks it down. And it's like, Amazing to think of how much activity there is in this liver all day, every millisecond of your life. Also, you can see metabolism. We have a detoxification of fat, a conversion of T4 to T3. We have also blood sugar balance, right? Why? Because the liver is a great place for the body to store glycogen. So remember, you eat those yummy sweet potatoes, they get converted into the glucose. The glucose is then converted into the storage form of blood sugars, which is glycogen, 
and the glycogen is put into your muscles and into your liver. So that then when you're out getting that brisk walk and enjoying the sunshine, your body uses the free glucose from whatever the meal was you just ate, and then it begins to cause a breakdown, right, through what we call gluconeogenesis, uh, a breakdown of the glycogen or glycogen glycolysis, right, this breaking down of the stored, stored glycogen, turning it into glucose that then your body uses for energy. But the liver is a storage site for that, where you can store all of this good stuff. It is your refrigerator, right, that has the stored goods in there for you when you need them, as well as a lot of these uh, lipophilic micronutrients, right? We remember DEA and K and also B12, which is water soluble, but these are all stored in the liver. That is why through what we call enterohepatic recirculation, for example, of B12, that's why we don't need gorbs of B12 all the time. We just need small amounts. And what the body does is it recirculates it. It goes into the liver, then it squirts a little bit into the intestinal tract. We absorb that. Then we use it throughout the body and a little bit is reabsorbed from the intestines and we're able to recirculate that well as well as these minerals, right? Like copper, zinc, magnesium, and iron. It's so cool to think about. They're all stored in there. The liver is also involved with cholesterol production, which as you recall, is absolutely required for forming all of your testosterone, your estrogen, your progesterone. You need that cholesterol and it is the liver that produces it for you. So you don't need to be consuming cholesterol, uh, but rather you need just to eat healthfully and the liver will produce that for you. Now, the next area of detoxification is very interesting because you and I are exposed to toxins every day, whether it be plastics, whether it be heavy metals, whether it be, you know, random weird assorted things, um, any of these can be, we can be exposed to. And when we're exposed to them, the body has to get rid of them in some way. Um, and not to mention things that many of us do to ourselves, right? Various drugs that we use, the consumption of various alcoholic substances, uh, all of these, right? Uh, the body has to detoxify. This detoxification process occurs in several phases that we talk about. Uh, phase one, you can see here, we talk about the cytochrome P450 enzymes with regards to this. Uh, these various sort of uh, substances that are fat soluble in nature come into the body, come into the liver and then what happens is the body needs, the liver needs, these various vitamins and micronutrients, whether they be flavonoids from the berries and the apples that you're consuming, or whether it be right from the B vitamins that you're getting in all of those blues, reds, greens, all these healthy foods, nuts and seeds. Uh, the body uses these nutrients in order for the phases to be successful because you've got to take these toxins and you've got to break them down a little bit, bind them up with other things so that now they are water soluble. Once they're water soluble, now they can go into the next phase, which is phase two, where we get this conjugation process occurring. So whether it be adding a CH group or breaking down something with an addition of an amino acid on there, all these different processes. And then these toxins are ready for our body to get rid of them, either via urine, right? Eliminating there, or in the form, as I mentioned, in your poop, right? Because they go up into the bile and then the stool, et cetera. And the nutrients that are needed for this, right? Uh, you can see some of them there. And immediately you should be going, hmm, where am I getting these, right? How am I finding these? Am I, am I getting enough magnesium in my diet, right? Or am I getting enough vitamin C in my day-to-day -day diet? And a lot of naturopaths or integrative medicine physicians, they begin to say to patients, well, you need to, you know, kind of increase your consumption of each of these vitamins. And the way to do it is by taking this supplement. And this is what will get detoxification upregulated. The reality is what you need to do is eat a diverse portfolio of micronutrient dense plant-based foods, and you will be giving your body on average what it needs in order to do these phases of detoxification. You don't need to take some random supplement or herbal uh, in order to facilitate this. You need to eat lots of healthy food. That is the key in these processes. This is just another more complex slide. You can freeze this later and kind of look at it. Uh, but I think worth, it's fun to look at and just kind of think about, hmm, what are some of the things that I can do uh, to help kind of facilitate these processes? Um, you know, and this is, again, why it's worthwhile to look back every week or two and just say, hey, what am I eating? Am I eating adequate nutrients, et cetera, or am I not getting what I need 
Yeah. And we need to make sure that we are in fact, maximizing uh, the micronutrient quality of our foods, uh, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Now I bring that up, right? This is a nice study published uh, in one of the journals. And I like how it points out to us, right? So different substances, right? Whether it be uh, you know, astaxanthin, which can be derived from algae, right? And cruciferous vegetables that can influence CYP1A2. These are some of those P450 enzymatic pathways I was mentioning. And studies show that different foods, the black raspberries, blueberries, the elagic acid in raspberries, for example, and various grapes, uh, and the turmeric you can see over here, uh, all of these different things, the quercetin that we find right in alfalfa sprouts, that we can find in onions, in kale, uh, these different foods provide substances that then facilitate these P450 enzymatic pathways. And as a result, enhance the phase one and phase two detoxification processes. So cool, right? And that's why when you look at your food every day, you should not be thinking, oh, this is a raspberry. No, sure you can think that, but you should also be saying this is quote, medicine for my body, or quote, this is information at the cellular level that is going to facilitate, right, these detoxification processes. We should be adding those in on a regular basis. Now, um, I think we've talked about this because you've heard me talk, for example, when I say maximizing your nutrition, uh, that we truly are maximizing the micronutrient quality of each meal. So there's not just you're having the oatmeal with some raisins and you know bananas, but maybe you're having that oatmeal with raisins, bananas, a handful of raspberries, some steamed greens of some kind, along with, uh, you know, kind of adding in uh, some ground up, you know, spices of various kinds. You can add a little bit of curcumin. You can add a little, you know, your cinnamon. Add a little touch of some cayenne pepper, even right. You can you become accustomed to some of these things in small quantities that actually can help facilitate these enzymatic pathways. Now, when things don't go well for our liver, we begin to have problems. And I broke up these into kind of several categories. One of them is our infections. And I highlighted or bolded the areas that I think most correlate uh, with our lifestyle that we're going to talk a bit about. So infections, on average, right, hep A, B, and C, there are some weird random, you know, quote, third world country, you know, infections, like different worms and parasites, but those are not as common. Um, but hepatitis A, B, and C are various viral infections that can influence the liver and they lead to chronic inflammation. And once you have chronic inflammation on all those cells, now you end up with scarring and cirrhosis. And as you get scarring and cirrhosis, now you end up with a liver that doesn't work as well. And that can be very problematic. And number two, we have autoimmune disease, right? These can be whether they are the body attacking the little caniculi or the actual hepatocytes themselves, but this is where the body begins to attack itself. And this is why it's so crucial that we maximize our gut biome, that we enhance the thickness of our intestinal lining so there's less leaky gut, and that we also limit our exposure to the various uh, stimulated agents for autoimmune disease, whether that be the gluten, whether that be all of the meat and dairy, whether that be all the different toxins and chemicals that can uh, you know, be part of our exposure day in and day out. Next, we have liver cancer and biliary cancer. Bile duct cancer would be the biliary cancer. Um, and then there are some inherited disorders that you know lifestyle doesn't seem to have a huge effect on. It can help decrease inflammation from these disorders and prolong uh, a healthy life. Uh, but some of these like hemochromatosis, which is an excessive storage of iron in the blood and in the liver, right? Some of these um, are more related to our genetic inheritance. Then we've got lifestyle-related liver diseases that are very clearly lifestyle-related, including alcoholic cirrhosis, <clears throat> which continues to be one of the leading causes of liver failure in America, uh, drug overdoses of various kinds, and as well as supplement misuse and overuse, um, and then non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, NAFLD, it's called. And it turns out that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is now surpassing both Tylenol toxicity, which is a leading cause of liver dysfunction, and alcohol uh, dysfunction uh, caused you know, liver disease. Um, and so 
let's get into this a little bit more. Symptoms of liver disease that you may find, you know, uh, if you're like, wow, I'm struggling with this, this, or this. Uh, if any of these symptoms uh, right, kind of resonate with you, you might say, oh, wow, I do have some pale stool and it does, it's thinner than I anticipated. I, I do have some chronic fatigue. Uh, it is certainly worthwhile to get an updated uh, complete metabolic panel, basic lab workup, right? Uh, to kind of look at your liver enzymes, look at your bilirubin, look at markers of your liver health. Uh, so if you're having any of these, especially if you're having multiple of them, uh, I would recommend to you getting updated labs and possibly an ultrasound slash MRI uh, of your liver to kind of look at it. Now, what about preventing liver disease, right? Uh, we want to uh, talk about that a little bit here. And, and there are a lot of basic, simple things that you and I can do that just fit well with what my grandfather and his you know, co-founders of natural hygiene spoke of. And you know, the first one is to avoid toxins. And the reality is, uh, for those of you who saw it on social media the other day, I did a, a post on alcohol. And I just said, there's zero reason to drink alcohol, right? It's a neurotoxin. It's a you know, cellular toxin, it increases your risk of, you know, colon cancer, breast cancer, esophageal cancer, it increases your risk of, you know, dementia, so on and so forth. So it's just, as it turns out, you know, alcohol has to be detoxified by the liver. And as a result, uh, if you are consuming it, even in moderate amounts, you are working the liver hard. And so imagine that you're consuming alcohol, which, as I mentioned, the body has to detoxify. And now you consume a bunch of Tylenol because you're having you know, knee pain or a headache. And now let's say you're also eating the standard American diet. And so you've got some non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we're going to talk about in more detail. Well, right there, that's how you end up setting yourself up for now liver dysfunction, whether it be liver you know, dysfunction or a true liver failure. So very important stuff to think about that you're doing multiple hits on the liver can lead to bad things, right? And so again, alcohol has to be detoxified. Think about it this way. Imagine you've got a highway that only has so many lanes. Well, if you start diverting lots of a traffic onto that or try to get multiple cars down it at once, the, tr the, the traffic, the, the cars uh, are gonna be just all backed up and the road itself is gonna be overwhelmed. So we don't want that. We want to decrease, right, the demands on the road, in other words, on the liver, and alcohol increases the demand. I also wrote up here, you can see a list of some common medications that increase the risk of liver dysfunction and liver disease as well. So th there's multiple studies showing a host of different antibiotics increase the risk, birth control pills, uh, not to mention the common stuff like ibuprofen, Motrin, Aleve. But if you just Google search, you know, um, medications bad for the liver, you're gonna see massive lists uh, showing this. And so I see people all the time in my musculoskeletal clinic who come in saying they're taking 600 of ibuprofen three times a day for the last two weeks. Not only does that, of course, damage the kidneys, impair uh, kind of the lining of the stomach, drive up your blood pressure, lead to stomach ulceration, but it turns out it also damages the liver because the liver has to detoxify all of these toxic substances. This is why I'm such an advocate for you to decrease your need for medications as much as possible through healthy lifestyle. Medicines have their place, but we want to reduce their need as much as we possibly can. Number next, uh, avoiding infection, right, with regards to the viral hepatitis, right, of A, B, and C. A commonly is found in various foods that are contaminated, and so obviously washing our food well, knowing where it's coming from, we want to reduce that exposure to, vitamin, to uh, hepatitis A. Uh, B and C tend to be either bloodborne, um, so having sex with someone who has any sort of abrasions or openings in their genitalia, or sharing needles with somebody or getting blood transfusions. So really, right, to reduce that risk of hepatitis B and C chronically, we want to be careful, right? Use universal precautions when we're using needles. Uh, you know, obviously, if we're struggling with a, any sort of addiction that we are using needles inappropriately, get help, get assistance, uh, right? Be conscientious of our sexual behaviors, right? In a, in a world that is kind of very liberal with regards to our sexual uh, aptitudes, it's important to remember that the safest sexual behaviors are going to be, you know, in monogamous long-term relationships where both are equally, you know, committed. Um, but, uh, you know, we have B and C are real and do have significant risks. 
Vaccinations obviously, you know, exist for hepatitis B uh, for prevention. So if you are in a high risk situation, that is certainly something to consider. Uh, inflammation, right, throughout our body uh, also has powerful effects on the liver. As I mentioned, the liver does so much work, like a factory that's constantly working, it creates a lot of its own inflammation. So you wanna reduce that inflammation with every bite, every chew and every swallow. So that's gonna be all the deep blues, purples, reds and greens of those berries, the pineapples, the, right, the tart cherries, the, you know, the, all the mix of array of raw green vegetables and the steamed green vegetables that we should be eating throughout the day. Next, maintaining a healthy weight and healthy nutrition, which we're gonna talk in more detail about, because this topic is absolutely essential. So NAFLD, because you might say, well, Dr. Esser, I already don't drink, and I'm monogamous in my relationships, and I don't take a lot of drugs, so I'm at very low risk. Well, it turns out that the consumption of ultra-processed foods, right, which is a little picture to show you some of those to the left, is radically associated with the increased risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. You can see on these MRI examples, uh, you know, a very healthy, slender liver up here, and then one that begins to have more deposits of fat in it, uh, and then one that has now become cirrhotic or very fibrous and tough. And so as a result, the blood doesn't flow in as well. We have a higher rate of blood pressure issues. Uh, and a host of other problems. So uh, when we look at this, what you notice is the liver, as I mentioned, is a storage zone. So not only do you store glycogen, right, or stored glucose, but you also store fats. So as you consume excess calories, especially of ultra-processed foods, the body takes that fat and or excess calories in the form of triglycerides, et cetera, and stores it in the liver. Now, if you've ever tried to do work in a really cluttered home, right? Or maybe like a shed where you had a bunch of tools in there and it was just too much in there uh, you, or your garage. <laughs> maybe you can resonate with that. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to do your work when things are crowded all around you. There's just no room. Well, that's what happens to the liver. You, you chock it full of all of this stored fat and now it just cannot do all of its metabolic processes. It is unable to do all of those processes of detoxification along with protein synthesis, et cetera. And the chronic inflammation that results leads to fibrous hardening and scarring in the liver. Once an area, we saw those really delicate little lines of, of uh, blood vessels and caniculi and little tiny rows of those cells. When you get scarring in there, they can't work. They can't do their job. You can't get this web of blood flowing into there efficiently. So now areas get choked off. They don't get the blood flow they need. You begin to have decreased protein synthesis. You overwork other areas. And it leads to something called cirrhosis, which is essentially fibrous hardening of the liver so that now it no longer can do its job. I think about it like one of those little pads that you use in your kitchen to scrub dishes. Uh, well, when they get old and crusty and hard, right? That's like what happens to your liver. Uh, they just don't wring out the same. They're not able to absorb fluid as well. That's what occurs. I like this slide uh, from one of the educational institutes on this topic. So I just grabbed it and threw it in here for you because I think it has a lot of good data. Studies now show that one in three US adults has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That's a real problem, right? And you can see the risks factors here, poor diet, lack of activity, an unhealthy gut, the consumption of corticosteroids, like getting injections of steroids for your joints, toxic exposures, right? Whether it be different chemicals you're exposed to or alcohol, uh, advanced age, right? Over the age of 65, obviously genetics plays a part. Uh, and then these others. But the big things that are in our control are right over in this category in this group right here. And in particular, right? Obesity, impaired insulin resistance, and elevated cholesterol and uh, lipids. And you know, look at this right here, great example, 350% increased risk of non-alcohol fatty liver disease if you're obese. And right now in our society, right, we're looking at about 40 plus percent of people being obese. And that's why we're seeing these radical numbers going up. So we start out with this fatty liver, increased inflammation. So 20% of people who have this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease progress to this steatohepatitis, where now the liver is becoming chronically inflamed, a little bit fibrotic. And another 25% of those people progress to cirrhosis. Within 10 years, right, some percentage of these people develop hepatocellular carcinoma and up to 50% require liver transplants. I mean, that's what? Holy cow. Um, and so this is terrifying because as we're seeing more and more people consuming 
more ultra processed refined foods, not getting exercise and consuming excess quantities of alcohol, we end up moving into the direction of more and people requiring cirrhosis and, or having cirrhosis requiring transplant. And as this is occurring, this is going to just, of course, drain massive quantities of people's resources, as well as our just generalized pool of resources, not to mention just the burden of disease that just disables people. So the good news for you and I is that this is very readily preventable, right? Very readily preventable. The studies show that when we consume, right, more of a vegetarian plant-based diet, replacing meat and fish with soy and other beans, et cetera, and you know, replacing refined carbohydrates with whole grains, there's an inverse relationship to the risk of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. In other words, the more fruits and vegetables and whole grains, the lower your risk of NAFLD. Beautiful, right? So again, but we have to be conscientious. Look at this study at the very bottom showed the following. Higher intake of plant-based diets, especially healthy ones, lowered NAFLD risk. However, an unhealthy plant-based diet was associated with higher NAFLD risk. Not cool. So why do I bring this up? Because some of you out there are eating a plant-based program purely for climate reasons and for animal you know, sake. Those are beautiful reasons but that is not going to help you. So if you go sit down and consume, right, that Beyond Burger with a bunch of fake cheese and a bunch of white bread and slush it down with, you know, two pints of Guinness, you are in, moving in the direction of NAFLD. And you might go, what? I've been plant-based all these years. I remember watching Game Changers. How is this possible that I now have fatty liver disease and I'm borderline, you know, struggling with some hepatic dysfunction at the age of 55? Well, the answer is, if you still continue to consume an unhealthy, ultra-processed type of plant-based program, you are still impairing your liver health. Part of it is, A, just all the inflammatory molecules and artificial chemicals and stuff have to be detoxified by the liver when you're consuming them. And B, is going to be the absence of all the micronutrient-dense foods. Because there's only so much volume you can eat per day. There's only so much room on your plate. You've got to decide what you're going to put on there. You need to eat for calories, but you also need to eat for micronutrients. And so if you're consuming, again, as that example, that Beyond Burger on a bun with a few French fries and a, you know some alcohol, the little thin piece of lettuce and the little thin piece of tomato on there are like 10 calories. They're like, a, a, I don't know, a 60th of your calories that you're consuming in that meal. So they don't count worth squat, really. So we need to be aware of this as those of us who are eating a plant-based diet that are not consuming, you know, this, you know, what we recommend, what Chef Ajad recommend. So start making sure if you're over there eating all that Beyond Burger and all the processed stuff, move back in the direction of a healthier place. Now, what about in our lifestyle with regards to exercise? Well, with regards to exercise, it turns out very, very powerful, very, very positive effects. Because just getting that exercise on a regular basis, trying to achieve that 20 to 30 minutes per day of some cardio and even resistance training, it turns out as well, that this can decrease right the amount of fat that is stored in your liver and decrease the risk of NAFLD moving forward, right? So make sure that you are complementing your excellent nutrition with that exercise. So let's hit a couple of these highlights that we can talk about, right? I know these are like, oh, so not popular. What I've been up there all the right? is kind of like, what are you talking about? But it's like, this is the answer for your liver. Don't do IV drug use. Keep it monogamous. No alcohol. Minimize drugs, including Tylenol and anti-inflammatories. Minimize or remove animal protein and refined flour and sugar. Maximize the whole food plant-based nutrition, right? With all those micronutrients and those polyphenols and those flavonoids that go into the, in the liver there and they reduce inflammation and they facilitate detoxification, right? All that good stuff and get your exercise daily. The beauty is you do these things, your risk of any significant liver disease almost goes to nil. But I do want to tell you something and we didn't do multiple slides on this, but this is important. You do want to be careful though with your supplements because many of you out there are very well-intentioned and you are consuming healthy programs and you're not having this and you're getting the alcohol out and you're getting your exercise, but you may be going a little overboard with some of the supplements. So you want to be careful. 
It's very, very important. Every time that you're going to go use some supplement, there should be an intentional purpose for it, number one. Number two, there should be a goal and role for that supplement and some way that you can measure whether it was successful. Number two, you want something that is purely just that substance that has good clarity on what else is added as a preservative or stabilizer or how it was prepared, et cetera because the preparation process of some of these things can often contaminate them, whether it be heavy metals or various chemicals for pesticides, herbicides, and the rest. In addition, there are just straight up some of these things that actually can increase your risk of liver failure all on their own. So studies, for example, show that high doses of black cohosh, high doses of green tea extract, high doses, right? And the list goes on of all these different supplements that actually can increase the risk of liver failure. I saw this for the first time when I was a resident and in came this big, strong, muscular, very fit looking guy who it turned out was taking some random supplement. He came in, his eyes were orange with jaundice, right? And he just didn't look good. Something wasn't right. And uh, we got all these labs on him and his liver enzymes were through the roof. His liver was going into relative failure. His ankles were swollen. It was bad. Well, we just kind of put him on healthy fare and a lot of fluids and gave him a bunch of N-acetylcysteine to help support his liver with detoxification. And lo and behold, he got a little bit better. But as we were questioning him, it turned out he was using some random supplement to try to enhance the size of his penis. And as a result of that, it was all herbs, but those herbs were so concentrated that as the body was trying to detoxify them and break them down, it damaged the liver and put him into acute liver failure that fortunately he recovered from. But even things like kava, right? If you consume multiple cups of kava, right? Or different types of teas that are out there that if you're consuming four or five, six cups a day, you can damage your liver. So if you're gonna use supplements, you're gonna use teas, be conscientious. Use them as appropriate, small quantities, have an end goal and make sure they're clean. Uh, and before you even start them, Google search, right? A little bit, hey, you know, risk of liver failure with this supplement or kidney failure, right? Or side effects, um, just so you know. Because again, this often can be a multi-pronged issue. You're taking Tylenol for your bum knee, you drank a couple glasses of alcohol. You're also taking two or three cups of kava to chill you out. And, you know, and you're also 20 pounds overweight. Well, there you go. You got NAFLD, your liver's already compromised, and now you're doing these other things. And next thing you know, your liver is at risk. So this takes us back to this basic slide that I used for our knee pain a while back. And it's fascinating because it really resonates here as well right? Our foundation for liver health is eating the whole food, minimally processed, plant-based, ideally SOS program, and minimizing toxins, right? And infection risk, getting our exercise every day, right? And then moving upward from there based on what our needs are. So your liver is crucial for your overall health. It does thousands of chemical processes per minute for you, it requires adequate hydration, excellent micronutrient intake, adequate caloric intake, and it thrives off of an environment just like the rest of your body that is alkaline on average with lots of water, with plenty of exercise, with good sleep and recovery. The liver will serve you for decades. But be loving to your liver and avoid the things that harm it. And that's it. We'll open up the floor to some questions. We have some topics or comments. Oh my goodness. Maybe we should have called this 50 ways to love your liver. Oh, I like that. That's much better. I'm going to change the topic now. Well, were, there at least, were there at least 50 ways you think? Cause I can change the title. Uh, well, I bet we can come up with 50, but I don't think we lined them up 50. So maybe but next time we'll do that. I that love is it. so cool. Well, as I mentioned to you before we logged on, a good friend of mine was in liver failure who follows our lifestyle and, um, so the question that they're asking is, is there anything she can do now to return her liver function to normal? It was from drinking a, an herbal tea they discovered yeah, yeah. and um, her numbers are, you know, Billy Rubin, all those numbers are getting better. She's out of the hospital, but is there anything she can do to maximize her recovery and return her liver function to normal? Yeah. I mean, so there's some good studies on facilitating detoxification of the liver, you know, in particular using things like N-acetylcysteine, using things like silymarin, right? Which is milk thistle. 
Um, and uh, there are a bunch of studies demonstrating positive results from using these, uh, you know, simple supplements to facilitate uh, those phases of detoxification a little bit and helping the liver uh, to kind of recover a little bit better. So uh, those would be the basic ones, obviously, along with the hydration and then all the micronutrients we just spoke of. It would be like for me, I'd be guzzling down the green juice around the clock, fresh squeezed and having extra, extra berries added in with that allergic acid and the stuff I showed you. Uh, so I would be focusing my program right there, right? Simple micronutrient dense fare that's readily digestible and absorbable along with some of those simple supplements. Nice. Thank you. Uh, Margaret would like to know, where did that question go? I just saw it. Sorry about that. Okay. So sorry, I, I, I get it from so many different places. These questions, here we go. She says she, she uh, drinks a cocktail in the morning. Hopefully it's not a alcoholic cocktail after what we've learned. And it's something called RYZE coffee, born uh -huh. collagen, prebiotic and eight supplements. Do you think that's a good idea? <laughs> yeah, so great question. So Rise is a mushroom-based coffee, um, right? And so it's got a, you know, markets itself as this adaptogenic mushroom blend with a host of different things in it. Um, you know, the, what I would say, right, you know, so it's got like cordyceps and reishi and turkey tail and shiitake and king trumpet and all of these different substances in it. And, you know, certainly we're entering into a place of mushrooms that we are recognizing a little bit more about their adaptogenic, therapeutic, immunologic effects. Um, the challenge just is how much of that is retained in the tea form? How much of that, uh, you know, has both therapeutic effects, but also potentially toxic effects, especially when it comes to the liver, right? With having to detoxify this stuff. Um, th there's not enough literature to really know or support at this point, right? And I think that's what I wrestle with when I give recommendations. So the likelihood is that a single cup of that is of low risk to an individual who's otherwise eating an excellent program. Uh, the likelihood, right, is that it's less uh, negative than a big slurry of coffee, sugar, and dairy. Um, but I think you really just need to ask ourselves, why are we consuming it, right? What are the goals with it? Um, and is there another substance you could choose instead, right? I mean, I'd much rather have somebody drink a, a fresh squeezed cup of, you know, cucumber, celery, lemon juice in the morning, uh, if they need something, you know, on their tongue or just a big old glass of water, um, you know, to get their day started. But, uh, the risk based on what I know, and I understand it based on what the company markets, uh, that is in the product, uh, is likely relatively low. Okay. But this collagen, I mean, that's probably... Oh. Plant. Yeah, with regards right. to the collagen ad, you know, very rarely is collagen from plants. That's number one. Number two is there's not really good data on collagen right now. There are a handful of studies showing that it reduces pain in people, like in knee pain and things like that. Um, number one. Number two is, you know, you know, the problem is, uh, so many people take collagen because they're wanting the wrinkles in their face to go away. Here's the problem. The wrinkles in your face are related to the decreased elasticity of your skin. And that elasticity is maintained by various cells in the skin surface. Those cells reach a state of senescence, senility, slowing down. And they, no matter how much collagen you bring them, they're not going to keep making nice plump skin like when you were 15. That's just the reality. So I tell people it's kind of like, uh, if you're building a home, it doesn't matter how much concrete you bring to the site and concrete blocks. If the guys are sleeping, they're not going to build you a house. <laughs> you could just keep bringing concrete block. They're not going to build you a house. And so that's the same with the collagen. For most of us, it's not that we lack substrates for collagen formation. It's just the cells that should have maintained the collagen are no longer doing that job. So they're not going to suddenly form lots of new collagen either. Now there's lots you can do for your skin, right? And kind of the different topicals things and making sure you've got, you know, adequate hydration. You're not staying up late at night. You're not doing other toxins and reducing inflammation and all that helps, but we still will all age, right? And so, you know, some process there is normal. And so the consumption of the collagen, obviously, yes, like you suggested, it comes with other issues, especially if it's animal derived, right? What those effects may be on our immune function, not to mention the kindness to the animals. Um, so yeah, so I'm not a big advocate for collagen use at this time. Great. Thank you. Here's a, a great question from a live viewer named Valley. Are there any plant foods that actually can be damaging to the liver? Well, I think some of the, like we were talking about mushrooms and some of these, you know, uh, foods of that kind um, can be more damaging to the liver, right? 
um, in certain levels, right? Because they all have some amounts of toxins and things of that kind of the body again has to detoxify. Um, but the, the average fruit, vegetable, nut, seed, grain, et cetera, that we talk about, that product itself does not appear that, you know, it's not like you're going to consume too much, you know, kind of, you know, black beans and it's going to harm your liver. That's not going to occur. Um, but these more kind of things out here on the edge, on the periphery, um, you know, certainly have some potential, um, you know, to, especially if consumed in large, large concentration, have some negative effects. And I don't know if you know this, Dr. Esser, but we're also now streaming on Instagram and I'll do my best to catch questions on there, but Instagram and everybody else, whether you're watching on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube, the best way to get a question answered is to go to chefaj.com because then we can save it in the queue if it doesn't get answered during the, the uh, appearance of that. But I'm going to take one from Instagram. And this is from... Can I just real quick say one thing? One thing jumps in my head real quick. Of course. And, and that was that star fruit, right? Which I love, which are carambolas. Um, you know, there there's a certain acid in them that has to be, again, detoxified by the liver. And so for people who already have impaired liver function, eating large quantities of star fruit is less than ideal. Thank right? you. So, so again, like I said, some of these peripheral, you know, sort of substances and, and food products, et cetera, can have some negative effects just purely because of they have almost a herbal or medicinal effect. And so some of this oxalates, you know, sort of the, you can impair the kidneys and that in turn can impair the liver and so on and so forth. Thank you. PNYDL says, does non-heme iron affect the liver if suffering from hemochromatosis? So I don't think that non-heme iron consumption in the form of all your vegetables uh, negatively affects hemochromatosis. In fact, studies would suggest that eating more plant-based foods is beneficial because it reduces inflammation throughout the body. Um, and, uh, so you can comfortably consume those foods, uh, if a person has hemochromatosis, right? Because if you look at the studies, um, you know, that improve hemochromatosis, because one of the big risks of hemochromatosis are number one, twofold. Number one, you, you store excess quantities of iron in your liver, so it can lead to cirrhosis over time. And number two, uh, you store iron in your joints and so it can damage your joints. So I have patients I care for who find that all that iron stored in their cartilage layers, they get premature arthritis in multiple joints and they have pain. When they transition to more of a plant-based diet, uh, they end up having less inflammation. And don't forget, you know, non-heme iron, there's less absorption, you know, so on and so forth. So yeah, the, the more of these plant-based foods uh, are going to be preferable. Thank you. And someone on Instagram is asking if how much coffee is safe to drink. And someone on YouTube is asking if I drink one small tea bag of green tea lately, do you think I should stop? So I am not an advocate for the consumption of caffeine for several reasons. One is most people in America use it uh, in combination with some slurry of sugar and, you know, and, you know, uh, milk product, et cetera. So we're getting unnecessary calories and on average refined calories into our bloodstream very quickly. So for the person who tells me, well, I want to drink one single cup of black coffee or one single cup of green tea per day. Uh, my other question just always is, well, why? Uh, well, I love it. I really enjoy it. Okay. Well, if it's one single cup, so be it, right? It's that one single thing. But if you're using caffeine, like most people in America are, which is to stimulate your adrenal glands due to inadequate sleep, that is horrible. And so many people, they stay up late at night watching excess quantities of game, games of Thrones or whatever on Netflix. And then they wake up at, you know, they go to bed at 2 a.m. and wake up at 6 a.m. Now they're fatigued and they drink multiple cups of caffeinated beverages. So that's an inappropriate use of our, you know, our body's stores of energy. Um, and so we shouldn't try to compensate with caffeine for that. Number three is that there's a subgroup of the population that are very sensitive to caffeine when it comes to their mood. So when they begin to drink caffeine, they get these extremes of ups and downs. It's almost like they enter like a, a low level, you know, bipolar type situation or their anxiety is manifested, et cetera. Uh, I know Dr. Neil Nedley, right, is a big, you know, advocate, for example, of no caffeine consumption at all uh, for that very reason, right, with his mental health programming that he does. So I tend to fall in line with that mentality as well. And I would prefer people not use caffeine unnecessarily. But again, if one single cup is what you're having because it's romantic and playful to you and you just, that's something you love, well, that's a personal decision that you make. Um, and if you otherwise have a healthy liver, a single cup of standard green tea is unlikely to compromise your liver. Well, thank you for the shout out to Dr. Neil Nedley, who is my personal physician, which is the reason I moved here because uh, I didn't have a vegan doctor in the desert. He's the man. 
He's great. Yep. I got to get him on. I, I We always use him for our live events, but he's so right. busy. He's the president of Weimar and he's a gastroenterologist oh, no, and he's a new crazy. And I don't know how he does it. And he runs the, the, the he's amazing. I mean, it's right. Runs the new, runs the new start program, right? Yep. And, all that. and just, the depression recovery program. And right. he's all, he's, right. I don't, he's, he's wonderful. He's a hero. I love it. Yeah, he, he came, he came to my house for Dr. Scharfenberg's hundredth birthday. So I, that, I think I saw that. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, he was amazing. So here's a, an interesting question uh, from a live viewer, Amanda. In addition to food sources, are there other natural ways to at least lessen the impact of liver scarring? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know that there's good data supporting the use of various supplements for that process. Um, so that I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah. So, but obviously, uh, if you're going to consider trialing any sort of supplements for that, you want to do good research to make sure that you're not harming the liver further. And you'd want some good randomized controlled trials that demonstrated that, you know, consuming, uh, you know, X, X substance, you know, resulted in meaningful change. Great. And this is not about the liver, but uh, Mary Beth would like to, Mary would like to know, is it okay to use castor oil on the face and other body areas? The castor oil is a fascinating thing, isn't it? You know, there are people that swear by castor oil and put it on every single thing, right? They have a tummy ache, they put it on their tummy, uh, they have a you know, joint pain to put it there. Some people seem to be extraordinarily sensitive to it um, and seem to get very strong therapeutic benefit from it. Uh, I think it's just important to recognize that it is obviously some form of a agent that has a pharmacologic effect. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know of any data that says that putting it on your face is dangerous or harmful. Uh, and again, for various maladies, using it intermittently, uh, you know, like a knee pain or the shoulder pain or the like, uh, you likely would be okay. Thank you. Uh, Tina says, hi, Dr. Esser, I'm 53 in menopause, 50 pounds overweight. Hey, just, oh, and just started HIT six weeks ago. I'm about 80% whole food plant-based. I just had a DEXA scan. It revealed I have osteopenia in my hips and lower spine. My question is what kind of weight-bearing exercise does one do to build bone in hips and lower spine? Would walking with a weighted vest help? Should I take a calcium supplement? You did a whole show on osteoporosis. Yeah, I yeah, also I'd say, yeah. yeah just, I'd go back and watch that whole show on osteoporosis because I think going back to the foundation of what it's all about and the different things that you can do for it, I think is going to be most beneficial. So I'd go back to that and watch that whole thing. But yes, we want you active. And if you have a weighted vest and want to start there, it's a great place to start. And yes, we need exercises like squats and lunges and, you know, all the different types of exercises that actually build actual bone. Uh, but watch the video. Yeah, that was a good one. And we, we've got many, many shows from, from Dr. Esser on this channel. Uh, this is from Anonymous. Uh, is it common on a whole food plant-based diet to be diagnosed with Hashimoto's disease? I find it odd that since going whole food plant-based, both my husband and I have been prescribed levothyroxine. We're on no other medications. He eats a pound and a half of raw cruciferous veggies a week. I eat at least a 12 ounce bag of steamed cruciferous veggies every day. Could too many cruciferous vegetables be the problem? Then I want to add, thank you, Chef AJ, for all you do. You're the best interviewer on YouTube. Thank you. Love it. I agree with the second part. Uh, so, you know, so yes, I mean, raw and even mildly steamed cruciferous vegetables have the potential to kind of inhibit some of the thyroid function, right? Um, and especially in individuals who are iodine low, low in iodine. So if an individual has U iodine levels or normal iodine levels, studies would suggest that cruciferous vegetables do not result in problems. Um, so I think, you know, making sure that, uh, you have adequate iodine stores, whether it be through blood testing, uh, and, or just taking a low dose, you know, kelp, algae, seaweed type substance on a regular basis, I think can be of benefit. Uh, but, uh, no, there is not an epidemic of Hashimoto's occurring for individuals who go plant-based. Uh, so, uh, you want to make sure you're checking all the other boxes of all the other risk factors that may increase that risk. And again, if you're low in iodine, it's going to be important, right? If you're eating large quantities of cruciferous vegetables that you get that iodine level up. Nice. Thank you. Let's see. Oh, I think we already answered that. Uh, there's still one. Maybe I could take one from somebody was posting, but I live on coffee. What am I going to do? 
you're going to suffer and it'll be a cold, dark world for a while until the sun comes out again. Uh, but the reality is, right, you just like anybody who's addicted to something, uh, you have to make choices. Either you do the cold turkey brutality, right, and you go through the headaches and the fatigue and the cursing Dr. Esser and all that. Or you, you know, you you do a, a stepwise reduction, right? So if you're drinking six cups a day, you go to five cups for five days, and then four cups for five days, and three cups for five days, and two cups, and so on and so forth. And or the replacement concept too, right? So you take a cup out of the coffee, but you add in a cup of your hibiscus tea, or a, you know, cold, you know, sparkling water, or you know, whatever hot, you know, chamomile tea, or whatever, right? So you start trading stuff out. Um, but you also need to look at your sleep hygiene and patterns of behavior. And are you getting adequate sleep? And are you finding joy in other places in your life, right? That you, again, you're not just artificially stimulating yourself because you think your life sucks and you, you're sleep deprived and you have no source of endorphins um, because people do that. And then they try to make up for it with coffee and that's not the answer. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Vegan Alliance on Instagram says, can you say something about the causes or ways of reversing liver hemangioma? Yeah, so liver hemangiomas are essentially a little uh, collection of blood vessels in the liver. Small quantities of little hemangioma or little collections of blood vessels are not a major concern. If you get little hemangiomas all through the liver everywhere, um, well, then it can become problematic. Part of that is a genetic inheritance and different conditions. Uh, and part of that is related to you know blood pressure levels. Um, so the individual has chronically elevated blood pressure, has increased likelihood of dysfunction at the arteriovenous level in the liver. Um, and then also, you know, scarring, cirrhosis, fibrosis of the liver can also alter kind of blood flow and increase the risk. So I think it goes back to a lot of the basic stuff as far as what we can do lifestyle wise. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, making sure that if you do have hemangioma throughout that you're getting appropriate follow-ups with, you know, ultrasound CT and MRI. Great. Thank you. This is from Victoria. I'm concerned about my 11-year-old granddaughter who has nasal congestion, a lot, sinus infections, a double ear infection, taking an antibiotic, is tired and having headaches. The plant style I've been eating is thought of as weird, so I can't give my opinion. I don't think ice cream and milk are helping her. Am I oversimplifying this situation <laughs> by thinking a change in nutrition would help and trying a week or two of eliminating dairy to see it would help? Am I wrong on my part thinking this has nothing to do with her symptoms? What? Clearly you're crazy. I can't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> um, what? Nutrition has something to do with the disease risk? Uh, yes, you're 100% on target. And uh, the problem just is a prophet's not appreciated in their own hometown. And so the challenge here, right, is that if your family uh, is not necessarily supportive of your healthy living program, they're gonna, not going to want the child to trial this. But I can tell you from both personal and professional experience that pretty much 99% of all children who have chronic sinus infections, recurrent inner ear infections, et cetera, if they eliminate all sh sugar, dairy, and refined flour within two weeks, all of that's gone and completely resolved. So the little children who struggle with this recurrent you know, sinus issues and inner ear infections just breaks my heart. But every time the parent takes all that out completely and adds in all the micronutrient-rich foods, it completely goes away. Well, so, your children are fifth generation healthy eaters and I'm that, that they're either rarely sick or, or never sick. The only time my children are ever sick is when they have eaten a bunch of like, let's say some sugary cookies from a friend or something. They may be vegan, but they've got, you know, sugar and whatever. And they chomp a bunch of those. And the next thing you know, they're congested, not feeling well. And the beauty is my children now know right? Because they'll be like, oh, I ate too many of those cookies. I need salad. I need, da -da -da. you know, no more of that for me the next two days. And they feel all better. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's just, yeah. It must be extraordinary to see how they're going to grow up e eating this way from birth. It's a lot of fun. And actually, before I just got on this call, I was having my 11-year-old daughter making guacamole with me as we were heating up rice and beans and sweet potatoes left over from last night. And I was teaching her all the secrets to a good guacamole. Yeah. Somebody yeah. watching live said that you helped them before in the past. And are you still practicing? And if so, where can somebody come see you? Oh, yeah. Right now, I'm largely doing sports medicine with a focus on cool, cutting edge biologics like platelets and stem cells and things like that. But I am seeing patients here uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. And, uh, and then I offer still lifestyle consultations online for people outside of Florida who just want to talk about healthy living stuff. 
Um, but I don't do necessarily medical, you know, care outside of Florida, but I just offer lifestyle consults. And then we still do have some people coming in and juicing at our little bungalow and just hanging out with us every once in a while. So uh, a lot of fun things. Well, it is such a pleasure having you. I learned so much. It's, I feel like it's like a mini medical school education. Yay. Well, thanks for letting me join you as always and uh, have a wonderful rest of the day. Yeah. And yet last month was pancreas. If you missed it, guys, watch it. It was great because y'all have pancreases too, hopefully. <laughs> That's right. All right. Bye. Thanks so much, Dr. Esser. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back in about an hour, 11 a.m. We have Dr. Neil Barnard talking about how to achieve permanent weight loss. Thanks for watching, everyone. Bye-bye. Takes a little longer to end now because of the multi-streaming and Instagram. Thank you for watching. I can't control how Instagram chooses to show it. So if you want to see the whole PowerPoint and the slides, jump on over to YouTube. That's where all the fun happens anyway with the chat. And please, if you like what you see, subscribe, maybe give it a thumbs up and subscribe to chefaj.com because we send you the schedule every week and then you can send back your question. And if it doesn't get answered live because we have so many questions, we keep it until it's answered. And then we even email you back and tell you we answered it. Thanks so much for watching. See you at 11, Dr. Neil Barnard.